You're listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast, where we teach you to stay away from those who say things like this. The first point that I'm going to talk to you about being empowered to lead uh, is this, this idea. I want you to know that first, number one, you were born to lead. So you're like, I, I don't see myself as a corporate CEO. I don't see myself as, a, as necessarily an entrepreneur. Some, you do see yourself as that, and you feel like you're trapped in a dead-end role, in a dead-end job. And that you feel that there's more. I, I believe God's going to speak to you and give you visions. He's going to give you dreams about what's next. And then he's going to show you how to gain wisdom as you prepare to move into that. And those who say this. Baptism is intended to be a symbol that symbolizes death into life. It's like a burial followed by a birth. Right. Or this. And the Bible says when Jesus held up that bread... On that night with his disciples, he just simply said, this would symbolize my body. As well as those who have never studied Greek, but want you to believe they have. God's plan is for you and I, his people, to live and walk in power. Now this word power is the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis, it's where we get the word dynamite. It's explosive. It's time now to join your hosts pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss, and whoever else they invite as they continue their quest to train you in properly dividing law and gospel and staying away from the sacramentarians. We are going to do something a little bit different today. The last couple of weeks I've heard four different sermons, and so I have a clip from each one. And what we'll do is we will play them, and then I will allow you, Pastor Bruss, to simply decide which one you would like us to critique. Sounds simple enough. Do you have any questions before we begin? Four sermons, pick one. I think I'm ready to play. Well then, without any further delay, let's play Pick Your Poison. Our first contestant is Mike Ash, who is the guest speaker at LifePoint Community Church, and he's talking about having big dreams for God. In fact, I think if we were to ask any of us right now, so what do you want to be, maybe not when you grow up, because you're grown up, but what do you want to be on if you're at home and online, or maybe in the room, or you're at Leland, or you're Porter's Neck, like what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be five years from now, ten years from now? For a lot of us, honestly, we wouldn't have an answer because we've gotten to a place in our lives where we used to have dreams, but now we've just settled in, and we used to believe that something big was going to happen in the future, but now we just hope to get through the day and just stay where we're at. And I believe one of the reasons why I came this weekend is because I believe that as all of this COVID and everything kind of shut our world down, as we're coming out of that a little bit and starting to feel like we're coming out, I believe that God wants to challenge us today to begin to dream again, to begin to believe that maybe he is still up to something big and God wants to use you and has designed you to uniquely do what he's called you to do. Not only in this community, but across your world, within your family, within your workplace, that God is calling us to more. Our next poison is from Tim Blevins at Life Community Church, where Tim talks about the fact that all Christians have all the gifts of the Spirit. I think that every person 
as a primary gift for sure. I think there may be a secondary gift that suits you and kind of fits your life. I think that's true. But I also believe that all of the gifts of the Spirit are available to you. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. And the Holy Spirit possesses all of the gifts. And so if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you have all of the gifts inside of you. And I believe that He distributes the gifts based on the specific need that's available in front of you at that moment. Then poison number three is, well, he's a newcomer to the field. We've never really critiqued him before. His name is J.D. Farag, and he's associated with Calvary Chapel. And in The Poison Today, he's going to be talking about the rapture. But for today, we're going to do something different, as I mentioned last week, and talk about the pre-tribulation rapture. Namely, proof from Scripture that the rapture of the church absolutely has to happen before the seven-year tribulation. And then finally, Pastor Bruss, I have your favorite, Andrew Farley. Andrew Farley has just begun a new sermon series through 1 Corinthians, and he's calling it My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And here is why he's entitled it that. God's Big Fat Greek Wedding. What is that all about? It's about Jesus joining himself to Greeks. Jesus causing the Romans to become the bride of Christ. Jesus extending the gospel when the Son of Man is lifted up, he begins to draw all unto himself, not just the Jews, but the whole world, so that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, there you have it, Pastor Bruss. Everything now rests in your hands. So what's it going to be? Is it going to be poison number one with Mike Ash, who's telling us that God wants to dream bigger dreams or poison number two where Tim Blevins talks about the spiritual gifts and how we have them all poison number three where J.D. Ruhag speaks about the rapture or poison number four where Andrew Farley talks about God's big fat Greek wedding Pastor Bruss it's time for you to pick your poison I think I'd like to use a lifeline who would you like to call Pastor well, Bruss I'd like to call on you and I'd like to I'd like to kind of Talk through each of these. Oh. Each of these is that okay? Yeah, sure. With, with your help. All right, all right. So the first one is is intriguing to me because um, it's very unbiblical. Uh, Jesus, in fact, himself says at the end of Matthew chapter six, "Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." The poison's pretty easily spotable there, isn't it? All right. And I love a phrase that I, I read the other day, and, and this is a good one to put in our heads, obsessing over the spoils of the future. That seems exactly like what, what he's encouraging everybody to do. And not focus on the day, but obsessing over the spoils of the future. And it's very avocational. So there's a vocation problem there. That would be an interesting one. What do you think? The game is for you. Well, okay. Well, that doesn't help. 
<laughs> now, number two, uh, remind me, number two is the one about the spiritual gifts, isn't it? Yes, it's where Tim Blevins says that in any given circumstance, in any given situation, the Holy Spirit is within you, and as a result of that, you can go and exercise whatever spiritual gift you need in that moment. I look at Romans chapter 12, and this is what I read there, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul doesn't seem to be very situational there, does he? That that there are these objective gifts that are given, and, and any pastor is pretty aware of that looking at his congregation. In thinking that a person has all the gifts, It really does destroy the communal aspect of the church, does it not? That's a great point, that one person is a thumb and another person's a belly button and another person is an eye, and yeah, you just go down. That's very good. So the Lord actually knits us into his body in a meaningful way. But it does fit with the whole evangelical false notion that it's just me and Jesus. That's excellent. That's excellent. So there's a there's a lack of a communal identity there. Um, we are saved individually uh, and saved as the church simultaneously. You know, and again, I think there's a vocational issue here. Later in Romans 13, St. Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And he goes on to the commandments. So again, uh, this focus on the spiritual gifts really is taking the eye off the ball, isn't it? So, you know, I mean, that one's intriguing too. Well, that leaves you with Pastor Ruhag and Pastor Farley. I, I tire of millennialistic stuff. I think we've done that. It gets so complicated. I mean, this is the kind of stuff for which you have to put on the aluminum foil hat uh, and... Try to read the tea leaves. Well, the only thing that I'll tell you about that poison is it's an hour and 20 minutes long. Good night. So it'll kill you by the time you've drunk it all down. (laughs) Is that the idea? No, listening to that is the seven-year tribulation. (laughs) It is the tribulation. (laughs) And the church is already already gone. He's five minutes into it. The church is raptured in their cars. (laughs) And then uh, Andrew Farley, his seemed like the most... Uh, responsible of them all and he is the most challenging one uh, because he does really he try I think he attempts to be responsible so well I'm tempted to I'm tempted to choose him well you know I kind of thought that you would I would tell you though uh, what I played for you is why he has entitled the sermon series what he's called it my big fat Greek wedding yeah or or God's big fat Greek wedding in this first sermon, he does say some very, uh, well, heterodox things. You know, I think I'm going to, I think you knew where this was going to go. Uh, I, I think I'm going to opt for Pastor Farley. All right. So with that being said, let's get right into it. This is the first sermon in his series, and he's going to be in 1 Corinthians. All right. God's big, fat Greek wedding. Our series in 1 Corinthians uh, begins in chapter 1, of course, and Paul starts the letter this way. He says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus 
Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified. Very interesting. Have been sanctified in Christ. Saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a lot here and all he has done is say hello. I mean, that's how power-packed this letter is going to be. All he's done is say hello, and we've got so much here. First of all, their Lord and ours. Okay, that is a newsflash, because Paul is a Jewish man, and he is saying that God is their Lord and also his Lord. Now, this was controversial in and of itself. I mean, this is where we get the title for our series, God's Big Fat Greek Wedding, predestination, a plan ahead of time that God would join himself to people like those Corinthians. Now, I just have to remind you what these Corinthians are like. Remember, I mean, this is Vegas, no offense to Las Vegas. This is Vegas plus spring break, no offense to Miami Beach. This is Vegas plus spring break plus Mardi Gras, no offense to Louisiana. But I mean, this is party town. There are bathhouses. There are pagan worship centers and temples. There's all kinds of immorality in this place. And yet God has chosen through Jesus Christ to say, When the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all, yes, even those Corinthians and those Ephesians and those Philippians and those Colossians, I will draw all unto myself so that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. No partiality with God. And so, He is their Lord and He is our Lord. And through the true meaning of predestination which is the most unifying message on the planet, God's secret plan to bring in the Greeks along with the Jews, bring in the Romans, bring in the Africans, bring in the Asians, bring in everyone together under one head, Jesus Christ, of the most unifying message on the planet. We have issues with racism. We have issues with judgmentalism. We have issues with people categorizing and labeling. We have people who are in division and faction today, just as 2,000 years ago. And the solution is Jesus Christ. Well, so far, there's no poison in this uh, bottle. None whatsoever. This is what I love about uh, Farley is that uh, he does get some things really right. And, and, you know, you can hear the biblical richness in this. And, uh, you know, he's talking about things like predestination. Uh, and rightly understanding that the called are the predestined, and this is just really good stuff. The other thing that I love about Farley is he reads the text. He he actually works with the text. Yes, unlike unlike these other yahoos. Right. They they summarize. They say, "Oh, this is my favorite story in all of the Bible." Well, then read it. If it's your favorite, then read it. Quit summarizing it for us. Farley doesn't do that. No, no, and that's good. And it gives people something to sink their teeth into then. And not that this is a huge criticism of what he said, but he had one word 
he talked about how this was the secret plan of God. God's secret plan to bring in the Greeks. Oh, I did not. Uh, I did not catch that. I take issue with that. This is this, this has, has been, been revealed, right? Right. Forecasted all the way back. You could say to to the first articulation of the gospel in Genesis three fifteen. Exactly. Yep. And actually, let's just dwell on that a little bit. Right, the promise does come ultimately through Abraham, ultimately through David, through this through this Jewish line, but it's given first to the protogenitor of the entire human race. There is nobody on the planet who is not a descendant of Adam. The solution is this message that brought the Corinthians to the table. You see, they were seen as second-class citizens. We we don't think about this very much, but the Jews thought of themselves as the ultimate in spiritual people because they had the lineage and the heritage and they had the prophets and the law and they had Moses and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how they referred to him. Those were the patriarchs within Judaism. So, of course, Israel has always been called to the table. But these Greeks? Yes, these Greeks... These Gentiles, like you and me, called to the table in God's big fat Greek wedding. Now, there are more nuggets here, and we've just gotten started. I mean, first, did you notice that it says, to those who have been sanctified? Now, this is such a a, a word that has been blown up into so many meanings today. Somebody says, oh, you're good. You as a A believer in God's grace, you're good on that justification thing. You're good on that justification doctrine, but you've forgotten about sanctification. You have neglected sanctification. And so what they're trying to say is you're okay with God, but you're not quite okay with God. You're okay with God uh, ultimately, but you're not okay with God daily. And so don't teach that you're okay with God fully because that's too dangerous. And so they reserve justification for your permanent okayness. And then they talk about sanctification for your progressive okayness. What's he saying there, Pastor Bruss? Well, he's definitely got me intrigued. And I think what he's doing, maybe people are not aware of this name. He's not exactly a household name among, well, among evangelicals he is, Chavidjan. Chavidjan was a PCA pastor uh, down in Florida who had uh, really discovered law and gospel and the power of the simple pronouncement of God in Christ that the world is justified by his blood and that this is received through faith and that that is your, that is your okayness with God. I, I love how he puts it that way. This is the teaching of Scripture. We stand before God as fully justified sinners. The acquittal has been delivered. Our ultimate destiny uh, in heaven, I don't even want to call it destiny, the, the, the consummation of our salvation is assured in that pronouncement of the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing that divides us from God anymore because it's been taken away in the cross of Jesus. So there are certain sects of Christianity out there, of course, really represented best by kind of classical Methodism, these holiness movements that say that the justification needs to be kind of proven in your life and that there are questions about the validity of your justification if your if your holiness of life doesn't doesn't follow that. 
So he's on to something here. And I think what he's saying thus far is absolutely right. I, I do believe that when St. Paul says, uh, what, he, what he says here is, you know, having been sanctified in Christ Jesus, hegias menois en Christo Jesu, it's a perfect participle, number one. So this is a completed fact. Number two, you know, the way that Luther would talk about this is he would say that in Christ, even your sins can't be counted against you. The only thing that God sees is your good works. That's absolutely true. Why? Because our sins have been taken away from us by the blood of Christ. So this sanctification that Paul's talking about here actually is our justification. We have been set aside as holy in Christ. This is how God looks at us. That's my take. Now, I don't want anyone to mishear what we're saying, though, as if there is no holiness of life that follows one's justification. It follows automatically. It's the, it's the good fruit of the good tree. So what God in Christ does is he, he chops down your bad tree. It's gone. And he plants a new one. And it's, it's good. It's got great apples, great peaches, whatever the case might be. And the only fruit that it can th- throw is that good fruit. And so, yes, uh, holiness of life does, does follow. Is it limping in this life? Absolutely. Uh, because the, that old tree, um, its uh, stump keeps on shooting up, uh, trying to graft itself into the, into, the, into the new tree that's been planted. And they relate it to growth, that you are progressively being sanctified as you grow and learn. Well, this passage would beg to differ, right? I mean, look at it again. It says, to those who have been sanctified. Sanctified means set apart. This morning I sanctified my shoes. How did I do that? By putting them on my feet instead of hanging them on my ears. I chose to sanctify my shoes by using them for the purpose for which they were created. I reserved them and set them apart for a purpose. They belong down there, not up here. And you in Christ have been set apart for a purpose. God has reserved you. He sanctified you, past tense. And you'll notice He also refers to you as saints. Now, some people get their feathers ruffled when we talk about how we're saints. Because the most common view, it seems, is that we're saint and we're sinner at the same time. And that that is what humility is. Is to call yourself half saint and half sinner, simul justus e peccator. Meaning, the Latin phrase used makes us sound so scholarly as we say we are simultaneously saint and sinner. Now, I want to stop them right here just to remind our listeners, I don't know how many podcasts ago we were listening to Andrew Farley again. It was probably the beginning of 2020, something like this, or the end of 2019, where he started a new sermon series called Twisted Scripture. We called him the Twisted Preacher. And after listening to a couple of his sermons... You very graciously sent him Walther's Law and Gospel, as well as a Book of Concord. That's correct. You sent along a note, and we didn't hear anything from him. And here he is, and he is talking about, well, Lutheran doctrine. I think it's wonderful. I think it's neat that he he, he obviously spent a little time perusing those things. Would you 
it seems like it. I would hope so. I, I don't know. I mean, um, just to defend against this this jab here, though. Um, little barb that he threw there, in there's there. There's a little barb. You know, when Lutherans say simul justus et peccator, no, one, no one's... I mean, this is like Lutheran lingo. This is like saying, let's join in the te deum. This is the language that's used. Everybody knows what simul justus et peccator means, and it's not like we're like we're being um, pedantic or something like that. Well, it's the language of the church. Right. When we speak in these ways, yeah, normally we don't talk like this in normal everyday parlance. As far as the Latin, I don't want to say dumb it down, but we try to explain. Well, you're a six-year-old, you might not, but, right. but certainly by the time they're 12, 13, 14. Not everything has to be brushed aside. I, I think his beef is less with the... Uh, the per- Latin. The, yeah, the, the perceived pedantry of that, and more uh, with the concept that we are saint and sinner. And so, you know, this really goes to... All, all one needs to do is read Romans chapter 7. Now... There is a little bit of a debate that's been given rise by a New Testament scholar by the name of N.T. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. This is known as the New Perspective on Paul. And uh, Wright is the first ever Protestant to make a serious argument about Romans 7 that has to do with Paul's pre-conversion to Christ. But every other expositor... St. Augustine himself included, okay, so this is, this is deep in the Catholic tradition even, says that Romans 7 is a description of Paul's life as a convert to the gospel of Jesus Christ and that there is a war going on. Now, we can point to all sorts of stuff. I mean, look at Galatians 5, right? The, the, the spirit and the flesh are at war with each other. This is not like a one-off thing that anybody's making up. And until we are taken from this valley of sorrow, we wear the flesh. If what he's saying is true, he's saying that the Christian can commit no sin. If, if he's denying simul justus et peccator, he's saying the Christian can commit no sin. He is denying it. So then what do you make of John, you know, 1 John 2? If we say we have, if we, so John's talking to Christians. If we John himself is a Christian. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, there's a difference between persistence and sinning, which drives out the spirit, actually, hardens the heart and drives out the spirit, and the, what you might call, occasional sin into which a, a Christian, because the weakness of the flesh, falls. Well, let's hear him out. And this is a very common view. But Paul never once, neither Peter nor James nor John, never once calls us a sinner if we are in Christ. We are a saint who sometimes sins. See how quickly one can come off the rails? Yes. Can can I ask you a question? Yes. If you drive a car, what are you? A driver? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Right. Well, If If you farm a field, what are you? I'm a farmer. If you sin a sin, what are you? A sinner? A sinner. How many people do you have to kill before you are a murderer? 
Correct. How many lies do you have to tell before you're a liar? Right. So this is one of the frustrations that I have with with him. So he he starts off so solid and so often he has such great solid stuff. But there's this kind of inveterate search for novelty I find in him. I don't know. Does he want to be the next Luther with the great, you know, light bulb moment? I I don't I just don't get it. But why why throw out a very solid understanding of what's going on in the Christian, I, I don't I don't get it. Well, remember, he's the church without religion. Which means that we start all over from, from nothing. N- well, no, not from nothing. From the imagination no, there, of Andrew there, Farley. There you go. In a sense, he's not incorrect, right? We are saints who sometimes sin, but you can't make the next point. Is that what you're saying? Right. You can't make the next point to say that a saint who sometimes sins isn't also a sinner. Right. Right. And to add to your point, he just got through saying John never called us sinners, but you just got through saying that he is part of the we in 1 John 1 9. Right. There if you go. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Good. And 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 look at Paul in Romans 7, uh, where he talks about sinning. Who does that? A sinner. There's a technical term here, and this might be where he's getting hung up, actually. Uh, It's the word hamartolos in Greek. Oftentimes, and I've never done a word study on this, so I I can't absolutely verify the truth of what I'm saying as an absolute kind of categorical claim. However, in the instances that I can think of right now off the top of my head, the places where that occurs is it's its Jewish usage. So a hamartolos is like a scummy, nasty, Gentile, pig-eating, hooker-going, you know, scumbag. That's what a hamartolos is. So if that term doesn't get applied to Christians in that usage, I get it. That's number one. Number two, he obviously can't stand the truth that the truths of the scripture can be expressed in terms that the scriptures themselves don't use. So we talk about the blessed Trinity. Where do you find the term Trinity in the scriptures? You don't. Does it express the truth of scripture? That God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Holy Spirit is God. They are not three gods, but one God? Absolutely. And so we can, we can use these terms without offending against the truth of Scripture in any way whatsoever. Big difference. You're not what you do. Otherwise, it's a works-based righteousness and a works-based identity, and you would be set apart by works. You've been sanctified, which is the same as sanctified. You've been turned into a saint, and this is not fake stuff. I mean, the Bible says... That you're born of God, born of the Spirit, born from above, new heart, slave of righteousness. This sanctified process is real, and it's happened, and it's in past tense for a reason. Now, lastly... Now, before he makes this last point, doesn't the Bible also instruct us to mortify the deeds of the flesh? It does. Talking about this simile that's going on within us all. There'd be no need to mortify what's not there. Right. That's, a, that's an excellent point. And he, 
he's right in some sense. We are entirely saints because of God's declaration that we are saints. See, God's word, it's like we live in two realities in a sense, right? There's a demonic, fleshly, worldly reality. All of those things conspire as one to call into question the reality that God declares to be true. This is like the story of life. And what God in Christ does in your baptism, uh, in the pronouncement of the absolution, is he declares you through his word to be a saint. Are you a saint? Absolutely, yes. And especially, you think about the Lutheran liturgy. Everybody has just been absolved of all of their sins. Right? They, they are saints at that moment. It has been declared. The forgiveness of sins has been extended all because of what Christ has done. The confession is made. I am a poor, miserable sinner. The absolution is made in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ. I forgive you of all of your sins. And then right after the intro it, which means he enters, meaning the pastor. Here he, here he comes, right? The people used to stand up, and during the intro, the people would make an aisle, and they would get out of the way. The pastor walks down, he comes to the altar, and then what is the first thing that these saints of God who have all been forgiven of all of their sins, what do they say? Lord, have mercy on me. Christ, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. It's like there's this acknowledgement that the saints of God are saying in that moment, there's still a problem. And only God can take care of it. And He, he this, has just, mm-hmm. but we're going to continue to rely upon that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so God never turns an ear to a cry for mercy, though it may be broken and weak. And so what does God do? He speaks his word to you, and we say thanks be to God. The word is preached into your ears. He gives you his very body and blood from the altar. And then after all of that is said and done, we say, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And what do we say? And his mercy endureth forever. He answered the prayer Mm -hmm. that we made at the beginning of the service. Which we made in confidence because of the absolution at the very start. Yeah. My point is we're acknowledging, even in the liturgy, that though we are saints, there's still the problem of sin. Mm -hmm. Yes. Good. So the the liturgy does this, and that's a—more importantly, that's a reflection of of the biblical witness. Psalm 51, purge me with hyssop and I shall be white as snow. This is St. David saying those words. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Psalm 32, this is St. David saying those words. This is just really impossible for me to wrap my my arms around. Uh, Well, we can always go back and listen to the Sermon on the Rapture. No, I'd rather not. And can I just make, let's make one more point. If a person properly divides law and gospel, then one can get their arms around what Farley's talking about. He can't divide law and gospel. He's got the book on his shelf. He does. Well, he does. And, and, you know, he ought to, he ought to. Let's hope that he listens to this and reads it. But here's the point. You know, under God's law, what are you? You're a sinner. Under God's gospel, what are you? You're a saint. Which is the last word of God? The gospel. Uh, But the gospel 
does not nullify the law in the sense that what God's law says isn't true. Pastor Oakry always talks about paradoxes, and it seems like he's not willing to accept these paradoxes that the Christian really must hold in tension. It, it really is a both and. It is not one to the exclusion of the other. Good. And, and think about where you're at. If you're listening to this, you know your sins. I know my sins. They make me a lost and condemned sinner. And here, my pastor is telling me, oh, no, you're, you're a saint. Well, my life doesn't map over that reality. I can guarantee you Farley's life doesn't map over that reality. So there's nothing but despair here. And despair is not faith. And one is saved through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. As Paul is just saying, hello, I want you to notice, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how much anxiety would that sentence alone solve for people? I mean, how many Christians, they're in Christ and they believe they're saved by grace and they're going to heaven someday, but the part where it's all grace to them and the part where it's peace from God, perfect connection with both the Father and the Son, I mean, come on, Jesus the merciful and God the Father ticked off. That's what so many believe. Jesus the merciful hung on the cross God the Father and the Holy Spirit ticked off and convicting me of all my unrighteousness, and I am in trouble. Oh, I'm going to heaven, but they are mad and frustrated. That is not the message of the Apostle Paul here. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's he talking to? The really dedicated ones? Who's he talking to? The elite 17 who've done their devotions this morning. Who's he talking to? To everyone that is a saint in Corinth, you have 100% peace with God. And it is grace in your face, so much grace that you don't know what to do with it. That's how much grace we have from our God. You know, Pastor Bruss, I don't really disagree with what Andrew Farley is saying there. And this is why we as Lutheran pastors, and not just the two of us, but every Lutheran pastor I've ever heard, They say to the congregation before their sermon, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It's part of the liturgy, actually. It's a it, kind of a required part of the liturgy, if you will. Do you think Andrew Farley starts his sermons I, that way? I don't. I don't think he does. Oh. But but he, but it would be good. And you know, in our off-air time here, just between this, we both said, "Boy, this guy just needs to go to a Lutheran seminary to get some of this stuff put together." I mean, he's got a lot of good stuff here. It's just it's just not coming together in the right way. But but I want to press on something that he said. He's exactly right. He is exactly right. Why does anybody need God's grace? What is grace? It's God's unmerited favor. To whom does that belong? Sinners. There's no need to say grace be unto you in peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ if you're not addressing sinners. No one says this to the angels. (laughs) They're already at peace with God. They they need no unmerited favor from God. They've merited God's favor, in fact, through their, through their fidelity. That's number one. Number two, again, I'm going after this denial that 
we are simul justi et peccatores. Number two, he's talked about these kind of, you know, different Christians, right? The, the super 17 who've done their devotions already and so on and so forth. Well, you know what? The fact of the matter is every congregation has those. What it shows is the imperfection in keeping God's law. If everybody were a 100% saint without any sin and not a sinner, everybody would have done their devotions. Everybody would gladly read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the word of God. But we know that's not the case. Is it because they're not saints? No, it's because those saints, they also have sin and are sinners. That's a great point. All right. He continues, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in him. That doesn't sound scary to me. That sounds delightful. Enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also, I love this, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I hope you see how incredibly rich, I mean, you talk about getting enriched, this passage is just full of incredible truth. I mean, first of all, we, we see that we don't have to go shopping, that we're not lacking in any gift, that we have, as we read other places, we have everything we need for life and godliness. So there's a completeness in Christ. There are so many distractions out there, though. You need more of the Spirit. You need this spiritual gift. You need this going for you. It's great that you're in Christ, but... How many of you have heard, it's great that you're a Christian, but... It's great that you're saved by grace, but, and you bring in the big but, and then next thing you know, we're off on a tangent and we're distracted, we've lost focus, oh, we're connected to Christ, but our eyes are not fixed on Him, and what Paul is saying is you don't lack, you don't lack in any gift. Okay, I don't think... Either of us can argue with that. I mean, that, oh, that's spot on. Spot on. Spot on. You know, I'm, I'm th I want to think about his, the name of his church. His church without religion. Now, he's down in, what, Lubbock or something like that. Um, you know, religion in Lubbock is probably your basic kind of holiness, Baptisty kind of thing. And, and if that is religion to your Lubbockian, um, yeah. Call this church without religion, and not we don't want that religion at all. And he's doing a great job here saying, look, this is all about Jesus. However, isn't this a test case for heterodoxy? Yes. In that there are certain things that are as straight as can be, and then there are certain things that are as crooked as, as you can find. Right. So you're, you're saying about Farley. Yeah. Yeah, that, that within his preaching, I mean, we, we, have, we have recognized already, what, two, three times, some really fantastic pronouncements that are spot on. 
but it's mixed with this with this heterodoxy. And see, my point is, is that the goal of every Christian, whether you and I, through what we do here or books that we send to him, whether he gets his heterodoxy straightened out or not, the listener who is listening to us now, his goal in the Christian life is to weed out any sort of heterodox teaching that they have heard, believed, maybe even turned around and taught themselves. There's a purge that one is constantly on with this body of sin to rid oneself of anything that's not orthodox, that's not straight. That's correct. No matter how good it feels, no matter how inspiring it might be to you, you know, like some of these things we heard at the beginning of the podcast, you know, pursuing your dream. I mean, that is just, talk about eyes off Christ. That is nutsy cuckoo. I want to commend him though. You know, I, I think he sniffs something really, something is rotten in Denmark and he knows it. Yeah. He's talked about this before about how I don't think he uses the word despair, that this will lead one to despair. But we've recognized before that he's got his finger on a major, uh, what, hole in the dam, so to speak, uh, that, that is what you and I know to be American evangelicalism. And let's encourage that. Let's encourage him to continue to, to be discerning about those things. I mean, that is a really wonderful gift, and, he, and, he's, and he's got it. Now, the problem is, I mean, and I know where you're going to go. Okay, good. There's somebody who's got an answer for it. Right. He can't be saying, here's the problem over here, and then creating another problem over here. I mean, this is the, you know, the proverbial ditch on either side of the road. Correct. Right, so so weaving other heterodoxy into his into his or in, into the things that he has rightly corrected. Yeah, um, in his defense, I want to I want to say this. I mean, think about your own autobiography, right? How you started to sniff something that you knew something was rotten in Denmark, and you you it took you a while to cast around to find. And and I don't think you I don't I don't think you opened any single book to say okay this one has got the answer for me. It was part of your ongoing critique of what was wrong, and then you found it by the grace of God. Yes, and I liken it to braces. You know, if you're going to straighten crooked teeth, it is not an overnight process. It takes a long time, and there's there's pain involved. So it's not a, a, a one book, it's not a one sermon or one lecture or what have you. It is a, a, constant, a constant pushing of something that's foreign to you. Right. And so on this one, he's heard the simul justus et peccator. But he's rejected it. He's rejected it. So, so he, 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 you know, he's got a little taste of it somehow or other. I don't think he's fully understood it. That when we say that, well, we've already laid out the case for it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Romans 7, blah, blah, blah. There are lots of it. Hopefully he listens to this and hopefully this is enough to make him go back and reconsider simul justus hippocator. He doesn't have to use the same words we do. In fact, he's not using the same words we do, but he's saying the same thing. I hope he recognizes that. Now, this next part blows me away. I mean, how many people are scared of the return of Christ? 
And how many people think that maybe they could lose their salvation? I mean, we're talking about millions of believers that, again, go back and say, the cross and the resurrection is why I'm saved, but I could lose it because what if I, what if I, what if I, what if I, and you fill in the blank. What if I do a big sin? What if I do many sins? What if I do frequent sins? What if I do willful sins? All of that stuff. What if I, putting myself at the center of the equation, now look at how Paul expresses it. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will also do what? Confirm you, how long? To the end, in what condition? blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's going to make you blameless? Jesus. How long does he make you blameless? Forever. And so anybody worried about losing it is insulting the veracity, the truthfulness of this promise. Anybody worried about losing it is is calling God a liar. God, you're not going to finish what you started. God, you are holding me safe today, but maybe not tomorrow. God, you have confirmed my salvation for this hour, but who knows for the next hour. And do you see that Paul is giving us an assurance that is Christ-centered and Jesus-based and focused on the cross and resurrection, not on us? Who is it that establishes you? Jesus. This is the point that I was making earlier. You've got good stuff. But Agreed. You, but you can lose your salvation. Correct. The elect cannot lose their salvation. Those whom he has um, chosen, he has predestined, and all this sort of stuff. So the elect cannot lose their salvation. Can a Christian fear for his salvation? Be afraid that I might not stay in the faith. Is that a possibility? Absolutely. It's almost inconceivable for me to go through this life where my life is filled with sin, where I've seen the faithful fall away from their baptism, uh, oftentimes never to return, to be drawn back to it. Uh, It's impossible for me to say, I'm not concerned about that. That is a preaching of God's law. What he's doing is he's taking the preaching of the gospel and he's saying, look, there is a superior word of God here. And you may rest assured that if you are hearing this right now, God wants to save you. And he's going to take care of it. Again, a confusion of law and gospel. What he's done is he's taken the gospel to eliminate the other law claim that is a word of God that stands forever. Let's think of the examples in the scriptures. What about Ananias and his wife? Were they Christians? What about Saul? He was the anointed of the Lord. Did he lose his salvation? Yes. I mean, he traded it in for a trip to the which at Endor. Even before that, he had demonic entities that were tormenting him that, you know, call in David so that he could play his instrument and somewhat soothe him. He tried to kill David. He tried to, you know, he's almost possessed by the devil to try to wipe out the seed right then and there by throwing this javelin against the wall and trying to pin David. So do people lose their faith? Of course. They do. Yeah. There's a false assurance here that's being presented. Is that not? I yeah, mean, it's, it's kind of like, go. you know, you could easily walk away. And, of course, uh, people made this charge against Luther. Uh, you know, if you talk to people like this, they're just going to go uh, live a dissolute life. But you must talk like this in a sense that, look, God has got this thing. It's all taken care of. That you preach to the new man, 
But Luther never stopped preaching against the old man either. So this is the once saved, always saved Teaching. doctrine. Yep. Yep. Who is it that completes you and carries you on to that day, even when you get your resurrection body? Jesus, you can count on it. Blameless. Nobody in this room is 47% good with God. You're either blameless, confirmed by Jesus, or you're not. Nobody in this room is 82% forgiven and cleansed. You're either blameless, confirmed by Jesus, or you're not. Do you see it? And if He is the one confirming you, then what kind of job did He do? So this rests on the shoulders of Jesus Himself, not on us. I just have nothing to say about that except He's right. Well, I agree. But then He's going to, he's going to talk about verse 9 here in a second. But I find it interesting where St. Paul says, God is faithful. He doesn't say that we're faithful. I mean, this goes back to the simile, in my opinion. You know, God is faithful. I am not faithful. I am, as you said earlier, just limping along here, doing the, the best that I can. So he is right. He's got a, a, what, a false conclusion or a false assumption that's feeding in here about our level of sanctification, which excludes the idea that we are also sinners at the same time. And so, lastly, we see in this passage, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I cannot tell you the number that has been done on this word fellowship. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, in the Christian world today, it seems like we're talking about fellowship like it's something that might last five minutes. If you're lucky, it might last five minutes. If you've done your quiet time and you've gone to church this week and you're all fessed up, make sure you didn't forget one, then you are staying in fellowship with God. But if you mess up in any of those things, you're out. Oh, no, I didn't mean you've lost your salvation. No, 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 no. We won't go that far. It's just that God is absolutely miserable when He looks at you. That's all. He doesn't want anything to do with you. You're out of fellowship. You're on the outskirts. You go over in the corner, get your stuff together, come back when you're ready, and you'll be invited back in. And you see, we even bring in the prodigal son on this stuff. Well, first of all, the prodigal son doesn't have Christ living in him. Second of all, the prodigal son had a speech ready, and he couldn't even deliver it. The father said, come in, let's celebrate. So there's a lot to be learned from the grace of God in the prodigal son. But we have something better than this going in and out and going away to a, a, a pen where pigs live and then coming back and going out and coming back. You're always in Christ. Christ is always in you. If you go and choose, you take Jesus with you. That's why it's not as fun anymore. Have you noticed? It's not as fun because you're forgiven, but you're miserable. Sin will make you miserable every time. He just can't let God's word stand on its own. And we need to go back to Pastor Oakry. You know, this is not an invention of Pastor Oakry. Uh, the paradox is present throughout the scriptures. Luther talks about it an awful lot. God has two words. 
I mean, let me ask you this. God has a baptized child of his own who for a year, for whatever reason, because fear of a pandemic, forsakes gathering together with the saints. Is God happy with that? No. In his law, right? Does God yet regard his gift in baptism as a valid gift to that person, their salvation? Absolutely. That's gospel. You see, he, he just can't let these two words stand right next to each other as the truth of God's word. He's, he's using one to, to drive out the other. I find that problematic. Well, the other thing, speaking of words, it's interesting how when you come from a Baptistic background and you hear fellowship all the time, and you do, like he says, you think of, you think of two things. Number one, fellowship with each other, and then fellowship with Jesus. And as we've been studying in Greek class and going through 1 John, to see actually that koinonia is so much more than a relational aspect. As the text indicates here, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Where does that fellowship actually take place? It's in the sacrament of the altar. What? So we so let's let's help our <laughs> let's help our listeners out here a little bit on that. Uh, so the word here for fellowship is koinonia. It is a highly Eucharistic term. Uh, you have to, in fact, begin with the notion whenever you bump into it in the scriptures, koinonia, that it actually has to do with the sacrament of the altar, uh, only as a kind of last-ditch effort to, to understand the word, can you import another meaning? But we have fellowship halls, and there's no altar in there. There's only right. like donuts and coffee and pizza right. on Friday night. So that's that's a misuse of the term in, in uh, contemporary America. Uh, Unfortunately, even Lutheran churches have fellowship halls. Um, that They took that over from the, you know, from the sectarians. This whole paragraph, if I, if I may just be permitted to say, it starts at, uh, his thought starts at at verse 4, and it begins with the Greek word, evcharisto, I give thanks. You hear the word Eucharist in there, and it ends with koinonia. I just think it's so unbelievably fantastic. The Eucharistic, the the sacramental overtones here are, are amazing. But Andrew Farley is a sacramentarian, and as a result of that, he does not see altar. He does not see body and blood of Christ. He does not see Eucharist. He doesn't see any of that. No. And, and it's sad because if you go to 1 Corinthians 10, uh, there, uh, the, the, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? The, the, the bread which we break, is it not a, a koinonia, a fellowship in the body of Christ? So this, this participation in the very body and blood of Jesus Christ is what underlies this statement. He's saying, you, ha- you, guys, you guys receive the sacrament of the altar, and that's what I'm thankful for, and that's how God's faithful. And that's how God sustains you in the faith. Right, right. Nourishing you with his body and blood yep. until you die and you get that glorified body. Which even then says, Jesus says, you're going to be taking the Lord's Supper? Even then. Right. The Feast of the Lamb. Yes. God has the market cornered 
on fulfillment. So this word fellowship, if you were to go to Bible Gateway, do a quick five-minute study of fellowship, I mean, essentially, here's what you discover. You're either in Christ, in fellowship, or you're still in Adam, out of fellowship, but you never go in and out and in and out. And that's why Paul is saying here to these Greeks... God has called you into fellowship. That's not going to change. That was the invitation. Come on in, people. Come on in. And once you're in, He's not booting you out. Do we need to remind of some of the parables? Um, You know, the guy who shows up at the wedding feast without the right garments. What does God do? He kicks them out. Um, Do we need to bring up Acts 2.42 where it says that the that the the early church these 3000 plus their kids and families who were drawn into the faith on Pentecost held fast to the apostles teaching to the koinonia to the breaking of bread and to the prayers um do, do we need to remind him that uh, Ananias and Sapphira were in that group the the, the he he's just he's playing with the with the with the with the text. Now, is he right? You are either in Christ or in Adam. Yes. How are you in Christ? In this koinonia fellowship kind of way, by eating and drinking the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the medicine of the resurrection. Let's remind him of the words that Paul gives in First Corinthians eleven. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes comes again. So it's this meal that we take uh, between the the crucifixion of Jesus and his return. This is what Paul is talking about right here. How does the Lord by how does he confirm us for the last day? As you said earlier, it's the koinonia of his body and blood and sacrament. Seeing how Andrew Farley is going to eventually get to that text, whenever you come upon 1 Corinthians, you're going to hit the wall that is the sacraments. I mean, even chapter 4, right? We are stewards of the mysteries of God. Well, what the hell are the mysteries? Right. Even chapter 1, Paul talks about baptism. Well, he's going to get to that in a minute. Okay, all right. Yeah. I'll never leave you. Oh, but you might be out of fellowship. I'll never forsake you. Oh, but you could be out of fellowship. Nobody can snatch you out of my hand. Oh, but you, I, you might be out of fellowship. Nothing separates you from the love of... Oh, but you, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Oh, but you might be... Do you see what we've done? We're insulting what God has secured. We have something unshakable and unbreakable. We're anchored to what God has done for us. He called us into fellowship. He confirms us. He establishes us. He keeps us safe. We're good to go. He's right. But yet again, he's not. Because he's saying... You're right. (laughs) (laughs) He's saying that this is what we've denied. What has he denied? He's blaming these people over here for denying certain things that the Scripture clearly says, and I think this is where you would say, he's right. But on the other hand, I mean, God wants to give you, as you said earlier, the medicine of immortality, his very body and blood. Listen, if you are taking in the sinless body of Christ, what does that make you? Sinless. If you're taking in the undying body of and blood of Jesus, 
What does that make you? Immortal. <laughs> so this is what he's denying over here. And so this is why I can't just run up and hug him and slap him on the back and say, yippee, you're such a truth teller, when he can't see this greater truth that is staring him in the face, but he won't look at it. Good. So you're getting onto the sacramental part of this, correct? And all of this stuff that he's saying is mediated... Okay, so God's the surety of God's salvation. All of this is mediated to human beings through word and sacrament. I'm, I'm taking your point just a step further. Remove yourself from the word and sacrament, and the promises actually evaporate. Faith clings to the promises. When there are no promises there, there's no faith. And, and this is what he's failing to recognize in, in his once saved, always saved schema. I mean, if I heard this sermon, I would say, yippee, you know, I, I've, I've heard this. I know that Jesus died for my sins. I'm going to go out and have the time of my life. And, it, you know, you probably won't see me in church again. I don't need it. Do you? Because I'm, I'm not a sinner. I'm going to be saved for sure. See, he's not using law and gospel properly. This is, this is the problem. And as you know, this is why Luther would say, the man who understands law and gospel, you bring him to the front of the class, right? This is like in band, like first chair. You, he is the, he's the best, he's the brightest student that I've got in this classroom. The point is, is that when law and gospel is understood, word and sacrament is understood, like the Bible becomes a brand new book, one that you've never seen before, but the connections are made all across the board. You understand the prophets and the apostles better than you've ever understood them before. I want to bring in Matthew 28, the, the last two verses of that. Jesus says to the disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now he, he says, How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So tool number one. Tool number two, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, here's his promise. And voila, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, he connects the promise to the administration of the sacraments and the preaching of the word. Take away those two things, and the promise is no longer deliverable even. It's, it's not deliverable in any other way. So you're saying that God connects promises to things, to certain things? Yes. Isn't that exactly what we see in the garden where God attached a promise to fruit? Yes. And so when they ate it, those promises or threats actually went into place? Yes. Isn't that amazing that God's been working this way all along? Even God doesn't change? He doesn't change. He doesn't change. So, so he can't deal with the, there is God's unchangeability. He's not reckoning properly with the, with the malleability, the changeability of the human subject, who is both saint and sinner. All right, he goes on. Now it's going to get interesting because he's talking about these divisions and factions. Today we, we call them denominations. Now I exhort you, brethren... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind 
and in the same judgment, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, apparently Chloe's people have been squealing, (laughs) that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, well, I am of Cephas. Oh, really? Well, I am of Christ. And so they're chopped up into denominations, you might say. Sound familiar? They're chopped up into divisions and factions. Well, I follow Martin Luther. Well, I follow John Calvin. Well, I follow James Arminius. Well, I follow, and you get the idea, we today are chopped up in all kinds of isms. And what does this show? I mean, is the solution just, guys, just shove that down, would you? Don't, 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 kids, don't, 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 don't do that. Don't, don't play with that anymore. Just a simple surface level, don't do that. There's an identity problem here. There is an identity problem here. Do you see that? They need an ism because they don't understand their identity. Again, I think he is correctly pointing something out that is wrong, but yet it's like as he goes on, he, he's going to go into another ditch. I mean, here's, here's the point. I mean, this man has a daily question and answer show, and I've listened to it. And people call in and say, Andrew, I've been listening to you for a long time. I really appreciate your, your take on things. Don't you think there are some Farley followers? I am of Farley? Again, he's pointing out a problem, but yet... He has become the exact same thing. Correct. So, so if he were really interested in this, there would be no church without religion. This is, this is an, an attempt to distinguish himself. I think we also hear this in his, he's in love with novelty as well. And this, this is part of the problem. But denominations, let's talk about this. Denominations are sad. I mean, a horrible reality. Is Christ divided? No. This is the absolute answer. He is not divided. What of all of these denominations? Well, guess where it comes from? Heterodoxy. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly where it comes from. Yep. It is not, you know, I guess in some cases you, you probably... And heresy. Heresy does create its Correct. own its own denomination of sorts. Correct. This is why I said earlier, our goal in the Christian life is that our thinking is orthodox. Because that is the Christian way. That is the undivided Christ. But when you go around denying the efficacy of baptism, when the scriptures say baptism also now saves you, when you deny that the Holy Spirit is granted through baptism, when St. Paul in Titus 3 talks about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in baptism, when you deny that the Bread and wine in the sacrament of the altar are the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. When you deny that it forgives sins, when Jesus says, for the forgiveness of sins. Or when you deny that God works through means, and the means to forgive you of all of your sins is your pastor who absolves you of all of those sins. According to John chapter 20, where Jesus says, whosoever sins you forgive, they have been forgiven them. When you deny these basic teachings of the scriptures, The denominational division is not the fault of the orthodox. It is the fault of the heterodox. And here we have the 
as we've heard in other sermons, uh, the perpetuation of this. Look, this denial of simul justus et peccator, where he wants to say basically the same thing. Do Christians sin? Sure they sin, but I'm not going to call him a sinner. Well, guess what? Just get off your novelty horse and understand what is being said by simul justus et peccator, that God does regard these people still as saints. Get off that and come alongside the Orthodox, but don't blame the Orthodox for being schismatic. And then just to touch on what he said, seeing how he mentioned Luther, Pastor Bruss, do you follow Luther? No, I don't follow Luther. I follow the scriptures, uh, what they reveal about the Lord Jesus Christ, and praise God. You know, over the history of the church, this would be to deny, if I said that Luther is not of interest to me, uh, that I find him helpful, this would be to deny the great gift of God in the church that extends not only through space but time. Do I subscribe to everything Luther said? No, there are some things that he said that were pretty stupid, but you know, many of the basic insights are definitely ours today because they're buttressed by the scriptures. Yeah, and so what we can say is, as Lutherans, we can say, I just agree with Luther. Right, right. On those salvific issues, on those matters of Christian doctrine, yeah, I agree with him. Right. And let's remind everybody that uh, Lutheran Lutheran is a schimpfwort. It's a a term of derision. Well, just like Christian. Yeah, Christian is is a term of derision. And, you know, we've just accepted the term. They need a denomination, a division, a faction, a group, a clique. They need it because they want to belong to something and they don't get that it's not an organization, it's an organism. And it's the body of Christ and they already belong and their identity is in Christ, not in any human being. Our identity is in Christ because, as Paul says, Do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ? But he denies that. So are you starting to feel the effects yet of this poison? I mean, are you tasting it yet? Oh, yes. The poison is becoming very apparent. But, you know, interestingly enough, there's enough orthodoxy in here that it could mislead an undiscerning Christian to buy into his heterodoxies. And that's why we're here. They have something that nobody can take from them, and it is certainly not a religious movement led by a man. Long after Paul and Apollos and Cephas are gone, they might remain, and they remain in Christ, not in Paul. And so we see that it's petty, and it's akin to worshiping at the feet of a denomination. Now, it's too late for us in the body of Christ around the world. I'm not trying to bash every denomination. It's too late for us. We've already been chopped up into hundreds of divisions and factions, but it's not too late for us to count that as garbage next to knowing Christ. He's got a really good point there, and sadly it's not hundreds, it's, it's thousands. But what's the problem? He's added one more. We don't need to change the sign on the wall, but we can change our perspective about who we are in Him. And so we see that this is petty. It's isms. It's chasing after movements and men. And then, he says, has Christ been divided? 
Paul was not crucified for you, was he? I love it when Paul gets a little sarcastic. Hey, I wasn't hanging on a cross for you, was I? You think I was on Calvary? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God. Hang on, this gets controversial. Especially in Texas, where some of us worship at the feet of a good water baptism. I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, they got dunked, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, wait a minute, I'm getting older, so I get forgetful. I did, yeah, 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 yeah. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I just don't remember. I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ, oh, here it comes, Christ did not send me to baptize. Okay, before we let him say his commentary, and you can just tell by the way he's talking here, that he's totally going to poo-poo what the scriptures actually say about baptism. When Paul says that there were some that I did baptize, but I didn't come to you to baptize, it's because there was a or some pastors in Corinth at this church whom could do that. That was their job. The ministry in the history of the Christian church has always been, right? it's, it's always intact uh, in the sense that the work of a pastor is always to preach the word and administer the sacraments. But as a matter of human expediency in its freedom, the church does assign specific tasks to specific people. In Luther's day, again, he'll love this when he listens to it, but in Luther's day, you would have, you know, a couple, like the staff at at All Saints was huge. It was just huge. You're talking upper teens. A couple of them were preachers. A couple of them were guys who were celebrating the sacrament. Uh, Several were hearing confession. That was kind of their specific duty in the breakdown of duties within the the one ministry. And so what Paul is saying is simply, look, it's not that I can't baptize. He clearly did. did. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. It's not that Jesus forbade me to do it, but that my principal job was proclamation. And I wasn't going to come into your house and take over. Yes, I love I love that point and and this goes to the mediacy of the call, doesn't it? That God uses means to call us into our vocation. Well, I can pretty much guarantee you that Andrew Farley is not going to say anything that we just said just now. But to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So I I hope you see that we've got a competition in this corner. The emphasis is on water baptism. Who did it? How was it done? Make sure you did it right. Water baptism. And in this corner, the cross of Jesus Christ. Who did it? Jesus. How well? Perfectly. It is finished. Now where is your confidence? Is it in a baptism or is it in Jesus? That's what he's bringing them to. Whoa. That is shocking. So here he's pitted baptism against Christ and Christ against baptism. Uh, Pastor Kearns, can I ask you a series of questions? Please. 
Is Jesus Christ the Savior of the world? Yes. Did he die on Calvary to forgive all sins? Yes. Did he institute the sacrament of baptism? Yes. Did he command his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples by baptizing? Yes. So how is baptism pitted against the one who, who instituted it? Because baptism is merely a symbolic understanding that you're on Team Jesus. Unbelievable. And yet, the scriptures clearly testify the power of baptism, that in it we're buried with Christ and raised with him again to new life, that in it we receive the Holy Spirit and faith in the saving Son of God, that in it our sins are forgiven. Uh, This is the testimony of the scriptures. Praise be to God. I'd like to make a minor point. And this goes to his argument that he's made thus far that the people of the church of Corinth are not sinners, that they're only saints and they're sanctified. Then why are they having such divisions among them that the Apostle Paul has to address and call out and say, stop it? Right. That's one. That's a great point. That's exactly. Yeah. Christians don't do this. No. Yeah. These are not the fruits of the spirit, are they? Division in the body of Christ? I mean, we didn't have to go very far for his point to become moot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so he says, and I quote, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Now, that's not a bash on baptism. We know what baptism is. It's like the Lord's Supper. It's an incredible celebration, right? But you don't put that bread in your mouth thinking, I'm getting right with God. If you do, you need to rethink that. I'm getting right with God. No, you're doing it in remembrance of Him. I'm getting right with... No, you're drinking in remembrance of Him. It is finished. Same with water baptism. As you go down into the water, it is a reminder in remembrance of Him that He died for you. He rose from the dead. And by the way, you died with Him and you rose with Him. That's what water baptism symbolizes. But it doesn't cause something new. Uh, Do you know what the term gaslit means? You know, you've used that before and I just have not uh, really... I, I looked it up once and I can't... Tell me what it is. It comes from a movie, an old movie, if I'm not mistaken, like from the 50s or something like this. And I've already forgotten the name of the movie. Our listeners are I think it's called Gaslight. Really? Yeah. I mean, I looked this up, and I, but I don't, I don't remember what it means. Okay, well, the, here's the, what the movie is about. The man drives the woman, his wife, crazy by turning down the lamps. And she would walk in and go, man, it's really dark in here. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've, I've got it all the way up. And it would slowly drive her crazy. This guy is driving me crazy. I feel like I'm being gaslit. He can turn around and he can say, Romans 6 says that we are buried with him. And he, he doesn't say that's symbolic. I mean, that is the real deal. Baptism does this. And then he says it's symbolic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If yeah. that is not the definition of heterodox, I don't know what is. Right. But this is why it goes back to your point earlier. You could really listen to this. And those who aren't really grounded in good catechetical instruction, they could hear Farley say, man, you really need to rethink that. If you're thinking that by eating that bread or drinking that that juice, I'm sure they use juice there mm-hmm. in Lubbock, Texas, that it's really doing something. You need to rethink that. He is the one who needs to rethink that. Correct. 
not his listeners. No. This actually makes me wonder how much he's listened to us or how much of the uh, stuff that we sent him he's read because he is definitely going after Lutheran teaching here and people need to understand that. And so we read in Acts chapter 10, I mean, Peter's blown away. He's got some dirty Greeks, you might say, some Gentiles who have received the Spirit, who are saved, and he shows up in their presence, and he realizes these people know the Lord. They've got Christ in them. What prevents them from being dunked in water, he says? What prevents them from being baptized? Nothing. It's time to celebrate. But I would have you notice, when did they receive the Spirit? They received the Spirit first. They were water baptized second. Some people don't like that passage. It doesn't fit. Pastor Bruss, is oh Andy, are, we're just fine with that passage. Are do I, Pastor Bruss, are you cutting that verse out of your Bible? No. Put that scalpel down. <laughs> you you can't cut that out. We are just fine with that. Farley verse. says you're cutting it out. <laughs> yeah, you know it's not inconvenient in the least. The sequence really isn't the most material thing at all in baptism. Sequence doesn't matter. We just have the command to preach and to baptize. And this is how we make disciples. So do we baptize little infants before they can confess Jesus? Yeah. Might they already have faith in Jesus? Yeah. If they've been brought in their mother's womb to church. What about adults? Well, no one's going to force an adult to, to be baptized. The way that they ultimately get baptized is through prior instruction. I mean, the pattern in, in the scriptures is not broken. It's just there are two patterns. And look at the, the, the Philippian jailer, where his whole household was baptized. There were little children there. But this is what the evangelical always does. He's going to major on the minors. He's going to talk about pattern. Just like with baptism, he's going to talk about mode. And he is, mode apparently is important here too, right? right. It's, it's a dunking. Right. Yeah, it's, it's like a dunk tank celebration. And I was thinking about this. He's, he's mentioned celebration a couple of times. You can clap all you want to clap. You can shoot confetti cannons when one is baptized. It is all a feigned celebration until you understand what God is doing in those waters. Right. It's only when you understand what God is doing in those waters that you truly celebrate. And isn't it really... Ironically, an adulation of the of the baptizand and not the baptizer, God. That celebration, is, right? It's like, wow, this guy got his life right. Let's 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 clap, and uh, you know, talk about his virtuous choices. And to add to that, I think I think it's interesting. I could be off the reservation here, but when Paul talks like this he realizes that the human element in the baptizing, that being the baptizer, it's, it's irrelevant because it's God who is the one doing the work. Good, good. That is an excellent point. And, right, it's not the baptizand doing the work. It's not the baptizer. His hand is just a hand that God is using, and it's God who's doing all the work. But he's the one who just got through saying that baptism, you know, it really is our work because we're remembering. Right, right. Listen, I, 
when I got baptized, I wasn't remembering Jack Diddley. I was just making sure that, uh, you know, water didn't go down my nose. Yeah. With their view that water must cause the giving of God's Spirit. Some people don't like it when you ask them about it. They change the subject. He's obviously going after Lutheranism here. You think? Yeah, I do. I absolutely do. Which is interesting to me that, that he's out, you know, in Lubbock, Texas. He's not naming any names, but who else really believes, teaches, and confesses that water baptism does something? Roman Catholics. I guess Roman Catholics, and I wonder about Episcopalians, too, a little bit. And maybe, maybe even some segments of Anglicanism. Right, and, and I wonder about hardcore Calvinism, too. I'm not 100% sure. But the point is this. No Lutheran would change the subject, and every Lutheran is totally comfortable with this. And we freely admit that water doesn't do it. Luther even says this in the explanation on baptism. He says, of course... It's not water, but the word of God that is in and with the water that does these things and the faith that grasps the promises uh, given through the water by the word. And so what he's done basically is set up a straw man argument. And this is an easy win for him because, you know, it's not like the lone Lutheran in the audience is going to stand up and say, now, hold on a sec, Pastor Farley. But fortunately, we get to do that. Here's a line of argumentation that I have used in the past, but it kind of collapses on me. For instance, uh, I had a friend from out of town, and uh, we were at breakfast, and we were talking about Lutheranism, and I said something to the extent of, I've come to believe that baptism actually does something. To which she says, well, I believe that too. Well, no, you don't. You think baptism, it does something to you emotionally. Mm -hmm. It gets you excited. You have that clean feeling. She didn't say these things. But she agreed with me on the fact that it does something. That's interesting. I was just thinking about this with the, the lame police yourself communion statements and Missouri Synod pews that you often see. You know, you're welcome to receive the sacrament of the altar if you believe that you're a sinner and if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and if you believe that, that this is the true body and blood of Jesus and if you want to receive this for the forgiveness of your sins. Anybody, just like your friend, they'll say, oh, I believe that but they don't really know what it means. It's too, it's too short, and, and, and the pastor has had no opportunity to interact with it and say, okay, then tell me what it means. And every time you and I have done that, interestingly, with people from other denominations, we find out very quickly that they absolutely don't believe what even those words are saying. Exactly. They have come up with different definitions for words. You're right, and probably mainly around the word is. Do you, do you believe that, that this is Jesus' body and blood? Well, this was the Bill Clinton argument, wasn't it? Exactly. You parse is. You bring up this passage, and they bring up another where somebody was baptized near salvation. You bring up this one, and you say, how did they receive the Spirit if they weren't water baptized? And they say, well, let's look over here instead. A mountain of evidence over here, but let's look over here instead. We don't know what to do with it. And what God is saying is, will you recognize that it is not water baptism, but the cross of Jesus Christ that causes your forgiveness? Water does not wash away sins. The blood of Jesus does. That's a horrible argument. Basically, what he said here is that because you can come to faith apart from baptism, in other words, by the word alone, 
the promises that God has attached to baptism are null and void. Again, he's using logic to overrule the word of God. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Why? Because the preaching of the gospel about the cross of Christ is what causes people to hear and believe. And Galatians says, how did you receive the Spirit? And the answer is, by hearing with faith. And faith comes by the preaching of the word of the cross. All right, well, he goes on about this word of the cross. He says, the word of the cross is foolishness. Can you relate to that? Are you accused of that? The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. I love this because how many times has the world accused you of having a crutch? Have you ever heard that? Oh, Christianity is a crutch. It's a weak religion. And so we get this all the time. We're told that we're non-intellectual. That you're checking your brain at the door in order to believe in Jesus. Uh, Atheists look at Christianity and in some ways they are very critical of it, even making humor of it for their own pleasure, saying that we're non-intellectual and that uh, we've buried our heads in the sand, ignoring whatever they believe is the evidence. And what I love about this is that Paul is writing this to a group that think, at least by nationality, they think they are the smartest people on the planet Remember, this is Corinth, so you've got your Greek philosophers. Remember that out of this movement come Plato and Socrates and all of their writings and all of their wisdom, their philosophy. They're debating fate and free will. And I remember in philosophy class getting a heavy dose of Plato and Socrates and playing one side and then playing the other and practicing a debate, much like what would happen in a town center There would be debates over philosophy and the Greeks would sit back with their popcorn, so to speak, and enjoy the show because the Greeks were so wise and so smart. And here's Paul, I mean a Jewish man, rolling into town. And as we'll find out in this letter, he purposely doesn't show off. He purposely presents things in simple language with simple speech so as not to impress them because look at them. They're already a mess. They're already following Cephas and Paul and Apollos and this person and that. They're already a mess. They're already distracted by slick talkers. I'm sure in a worldly sense they've got their favorite philosopher And now they've got their favorite apostle. Paul doesn't want that. He doesn't want to be anybody's favorite. And so he comes to them not with cleverness of speech, but he talks about someone hanging on a cross. He talks about a blood sacrifice and a resurrection, a a Jewish man, a, a carpenter's son. He talks about some story that somehow is supposed to hold the key to life. And perhaps he even presents it in their view 
is, well, that sounds like a fairy tale. That sounds like a children's story that you would read at bedtime. Give me a little Socrates. Give me a little Plato. Give me a little wisdom. And Paul is saying that in this message that the world regards as foolishness, in this message is the key to life, and his name is Jesus. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever, no match for me. It is the power of God, the word of the cross. So what do you think of that, Pastor Kearns? I mean, yeah, you've got no problem with it, right? I mean, he's, he's just kind of doing his thing. This is why we didn't interrupt him. I mean, he's making some good points, but I find it very interesting how he is highlighting that the preaching of the cross is foolishness. But you know what? So is baptism. But Andrew Farley is so much wiser. Woo! And we have seen how he uses that wisdom, right? It's, it's, a, it's logical arguments against pitting, pitting God's word against God's word, uh, as we pointed out just recently. And, and that just can't be. Another thought that dawned on me as I was listening to this is that, yeah, this was pretty good. He doesn't really get down to the nub of, of what makes the gospel so foolish, the, the foolishness of the cross. Um, and it's that I am so stuck in my sins and my death that there's nothing I can do to rescue myself. But I think there is. So the whole idea that my wisdom can't accomplish it and that my strength can't accomplish it and that my understanding can't accomplish it is the thing that wants to call the cross foolish. It's not really, it doesn't have to do with Socrates and Plato as much as it does with my inner wiring as a sinner. And he brings us home at the end of the chapter where he says that Jesus Christ uh, has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Which means it comes from outside of ourselves because we can't accomplish any of that in and of our own strength or merit. Correct. And so what is baptism for Farley? This is the virtuous act of a virtuous person recognizing that which is virtuous, God. It is precisely what the problem is with a sinful man who regards the cross as foolishness, as you pointed out. Well, we finish with a couple more passages here. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased. That's very interesting. He was thrilled. He got a thrill out of it. God was thrilled through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, I find that interesting. That God got a kick out of this. God got a kick out of presenting a simple message that would confound the smart people. And that God chose the weaker things of this world in order to save. What he just read demonstrates the way the world sees baptism. The world and And, heterodox Christianity. Right. Mm -hmm. He just got through saying that God laughs at these smart people who look at these means that God uses to save, and yet he is a prime example of it. You're right. 
And I noticed, I'm, I'm following along in the Greek text here, and I noticed something that just jumped off the page at me. So interesting, and I think it's got a baptismal resonance. God was pleased, right? It's eudokesen hotheos. Guess what God says at the baptism, the baptism oh. of Jesus? <laughs> this is my beloved son in whom eudokesa, in whom I am well pleased. Isn't that unbelievable? Everybody knows what happened at Jesus' baptism. This is part of the, as he said, part of the story that, that gets told. So what happened? Well, this cloud suddenly spoke. Uh, and it said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and whom Eudokesa and the, the spirit sent in the form of a dove. Hey, we know this, right? And oh, huh, how about that? God was pleased to save us through the message of the cross. So these resonances sure, are huge. They are. You take that event that took place where Jesus is baptized and you've got, this is my son, uh, you've got the Holy Spirit, as you said, descending like a dove. Okay, so you think back to when did we see water and creation and a dove? Hmm, let's see. Was that uh, was that in Genesis 1, Pastor Kearns? Six. Oh, oh, we did see that too there, right, the new creation. But we also saw, we didn't see the dove right. in Genesis 1. Okay, oh, absolutely. Right. You, have the, you have the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. Oh, but beautiful. I love that. And then you've got this Noah releasing this dove that doesn't come back. And then where does that dove land? On Jesus at his baptism. I mean, nobody would have any problem, I think, by looking back and reading those illusions and saying, wow, this is, this is connected to that. What you're doing is you're pulling us forward, just like Noah's Ark and Genesis 1 are in the rearview mirror of Jesus and John the Baptist in the Jordan. Now, Jesus and John the Baptist in the Jordan are in the rearview mirror of Paul when he's talking about this... Please language. Right. Yeah, yeah. But this is the beauty of a, of a document that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. You mean by that dove? <laughs> Same dove, right, right. So let me ask uh, just a real quick question. What did God do for Noah and his family when it flooded. Did he save them? He Yes, he did two oh, things. Okay. In one respect, he brought judgment upon an unbelieving world. In the other respect, he saved Noah and his family, eight souls in all. Hmm. What did he use to save Noah? Yeah, it was water. Hi, interesting. Yeah. Mm. Foolishness. Mm-hmm. For indeed, look at this, Jews ask for signs... Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, that's a stumbling block. They don't get it. They're looking for a military leader. To the Gentiles, it's nonsense, like a children's fable. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Are there people looking for signs today? Yeah. Instead of focusing on the cross, there are people chasing after signs. Are there people distracted by wonders today? 
Oh yeah, even if they're fake and can be proven so as the cameras are rolling, there are people distracted but what, by what they believe is a wonder or a sign. People are calculating things, treating the Bible like a fortune cookie or a crystal ball. They're tantalized and distracted by all kinds of false wonders. And then, get this, then there's this little message over here called the cross. And the cross won't make much of itself. The cross will not beg you to pay attention. The cross will not look to you and say, you must observe what I'm about. The cross will not yell as I am yelling. But in a soft voice, the cross over here, in the midst of all these other messages, the message of the cross, the word about Jesus, will quietly call you to put your focus on Him. He's a gentleman. He will not beg and plead to the point of being annoying. He will consistently point you to himself and say, I am the way and I am the truth and that is not the way and that is not the truth. I am the way, I am the truth. Will you look to me or will you look for signs and wonders and tantalizing distractions one week and one month and one year longer? The truth will always set you free. This is the problem that we have with Farley McFarley over and over again. The majority of what he says there is gold. It was really good, I thought. No, nobody yeah. is going to argue with that. Right. Or nobody, or no one should argue with it. No, he's spot on. But would you call this like a gospel reductionist? He's gotten out the knife, and he is, he's the one who is cutting not just aspects of the truth. He's cutting out major portions of the truth. God in his foolishness has sought to save the way God wants to save. It's really no different from God looking at Noah and saying, hey, build whatever boat you want to build. That's not what he said. He gave Noah explicit instructions on how to build this boat. You fast forward from there. We're going to worship God out in the wilderness. God didn't say, you're going to do it however you want to do it. He said, you're going to do it a specific way. And this is actually where Christians, when they're reading their Bible, like they, they peter out in this portion, right? Because they get like inundated with all of these details to, you know, specific clasps and the length of the curtains and the color of the curtains and what the curtains are going to be made out of and how it's going to be spaced. The Lord specifically said, this is the way you'll worship me. Do not be creative. And now it is the same thing. God has said, this is the way that I save. Yes, it is the preaching of the cross. But how what took place on that cross get applied to you. That is, I think, what he's missing. You know, he talks about the uh, the foolishness, foolishness of what we preach. It's almost impossible to imagine, in what universe does this occur, that Paul has forgotten the very last words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them what? in the name of the Father and what? of the Son. And of, yeah, isn't that amazing? And teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And and uh, you know we've talked in in a different context about how that uh, is is sacramental. Uh, the, all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Uh, but definitely, it's like it's it's like you got to cut out huge chunks of what Jesus said, or really important chunks of what Jesus said, to get to this kind of reductionist point that you're talking about. I've said it before, but when I was listening to Lutheran pastors, and this is when I was an evangelical pastor, every one of these guys to a man would speak about the sacrament of the altar and holy baptism. In every sermon. Every sermon. Didn't matter what, what scripture was being referenced. It always came back to that. And it was difficult for me to hear. Because I, I like Farley here, I did not see the foolishness of God in, I don't want to say choosing to save this way, but... How would you say that? Choosing to save this way. <laughs> okay, fair enough. It just blows me away that this is foolishness in the world's eyes. And here he's found foolishness within the message itself. Well, we finish with this. Consider your calling. It was a weak outlook. There weren't many smart people out there. That's what he's saying. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were strong. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were kings and queens or rulers, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. God has chosen the base things of the world, the things that people despise, God has chosen, the things that are not, that appear to be nothing, foolishness, meaningless. God has chosen those things so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Exactly. And you're applying this to baptism. And bread and wine. Right. And a pastor standing up and saying, I forgive you of all of your sins. Who's a sinner? I mean, if, if these things aren't foolishness, I don't know what is. But they are foolishness, and that's why they're being ruled out by him, right? Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's, it's not that we're saying that they're in because they are foolish, we're saying they're in because God commanded them, and therefore, in our fallen fleshliness, we simply can't think of them as wise. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. You want real wisdom? His name is Jesus. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Let him who boasts, boast in Jesus Christ. What does this tell you? God did it on purpose. It looks foolish on purpose. You want wisdom, don't look to Socrates. You want smarts, don't look to Plato. You want the message of life, don't look to self-improvement. It is by His doing that we are in Christ Jesus. Now, notice that word in. A few final thoughts. You are in Jesus, and He is wisdom to you. You are in Jesus, and He is redemption to you. You are in Jesus, and He is righteousness to you. 
In other words, he's your everything. Pastor Bruss, what does being in Christ mean? This is the baptismal language, the in and out language. Do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's like baptism's a door, and you go into the door, and then you're in the room. That's being in Christ Jesus. So to miss the baptismal language here is really unfortunate. So when one looks through the epistles and sees numerous times of being in Christ, this is, as you said, baptismal language. It's code for being baptized because this is the only way that one is in Christ is through baptism. Right. And it's even in God's command, isn't it? In Christ's command. Baptizing them in. in. But for Farley... Being in Christ is simply believing. That seems to be what he's saying, isn't it? So if he's your everything, when they come knocking at your door offering something different, you got to know who you're in. And you got to know that he's enough. And you got to know that this is not about scholarship and being the smartest guy in the room. This is not about slick talk or persuasive speech. This is about the cross and the resurrection, the word about Jesus. This is Christ-centered, and Jesus is our everything. Let's pray together. Nope, I'm not going to let him pray for us. Okay. You know, I, I just want to say so close and yet so far away. You know, is, isn't this an interesting, sad, you know, you've said you kind of run the emotional gamut here. It's frustrating. It's, it is sad to see just this kind of... But then to have an understanding that he has of languages. Right. He, he's no slouch, and this is what we appreciate about him. Right. There are plenty of slouches out there. This is the difference between you and me, Pastor Bros. I'll listen to the slouches, and I don't really expect much from them. This guy is not a slouch, but yet he is still off the reservation. He's missing the boat, and... The power of, and you've pointed this out many, many times, and, and I think it's worth bearing in mind. If you've been told to put on the blinders to the sacraments, or if no one has ever, you know, maybe you just had them on, and no one's ever kind of pulled them back so you can see more, you're just not going to, you're just, you're, you're not looking for it. It's, it's kind of like dropping these Gideon Bibles in, you know, in, in hotel rooms. If you don't know why you're reading the Bible, if you don't know that the key to the Bible is Jesus and what he's done, it's just another book, a boring read, probably. You need someone to, to teach you. But I think we've also shown that the words themselves of the scriptures lead to this teaching. It's not like we've got this blank slate that's the scriptures, and we've got competing more authoritative voices than the scriptures themselves that are telling us how to read it, is that when you let the scriptures talk for themselves, the message that comes through is God works through means. But he's been trained with either the blinders on or never to see these things, the sacraments. 
What's he going to do when he gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when he gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? I mean, where it's not these veiled references to the sacraments. That is exactly what Paul is addressing. What's he going to do then? He's going to miss it. There's no question. Missing the sacramental language when there's allusions is one thing. Right, right. But missing it when When. Paul says what? The cup that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? What? (laughs) How does somebody who's not a slouch not realize that they've been taught incorrectly and that they've been teaching incorrectly? I think you just need someone to be patient with you and sit down with you and show you. And hopefully that's what we're doing here for Pastor Farley. Well, we'll certainly hear from Pastor Farley again when he gets to these different chapters throughout his study. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, we do hope that Pastor Farley is tuning in and we expect that his blood will boil a little bit from uh, the conversation. Hope that he recognizes that there are certain things that we absolutely think he's spot on about. Uh, but really, really wish the clarity of the sacramental language in the scriptures were apparent to him. You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss. If you'd like to support the work they do, go to their Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the plucked chicken.